0: Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own, with your host, Douglas Isles.
1: Hello and welcome to the Investing for Life podcast. I'm Douglas Isles, and my goal is to help you, the listener, by encouraging my guests to unpack their successes using a framework modeled on Platinum's time-tested investment principles. We will explore temporary setbacks that shaped our guests. We'll learn about the long-term steps they've taken to ensure they're on the right path, and we'll hear how they stand out from the crowd. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Robson. Catherine spent the major part of her career as a financial advisor, recently selling the business that she founded. Today, she's on a number of boards and is a big advocate of female-led startups through her position on the board of Scale Investors. Catherine, today you have a strong focus on the idea of women starting businesses, but I'd like to start by going back to your own beginnings, and I'd love to start by talking about your memories of childhood, which you described as looking perfect from the outside.
0: Yeah, so we were a very middle-class, normal, average Australian suburban family, Um, and, you know, we had all the things that you would want, Um, you know, two cars, house dog, but I think... You know, one of the things that hung as a sort of pall over our family existence was a real tension about money. And it wasn't that we didn't have money necessarily, but I think there was between my parents an absence of the ability to really communicate about money and prioritize um, the way in which as a family we used money. And so there was always this sort of tension um, and my mother, you know, used to joke that, that women were only ever one husband away from poverty and that really left a lasting impression on me as a child um, and it really made me feel like I wanted to be in control of my own destiny and have um, my own financial independence and that's one of the reasons um, I wanted to, uh, you know, go and study the things I did and, and go on to become a financial advisor.
1: Living in that house and that tension there, was it still a happy childhood? Oh,
0: no. All of us have aspects of our childhood that are magical um, but I think I'm keen to create a different sort of environment for my kids as they grow up.
1: Let's say as you're growing up, you wanted to become more financially independent. Can we sort of go through the steps that, that you took as a perhaps teenager and into early adulthood?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of family folklore is that um, I was always quite focused on money and you know, my, my father worked in finance. And he used to, you know, give us pocket money. And he he, um, he used to incentivize us and say at the end of every quarter, if there was money left in your bank account, he'd double it. So I used to go to my friends, you know, the second last day of the quarter and get them to put money in my bank account so my father would double it. Um, so I think, you know, I've always been quite focused on um, feeling like I was in control of my own destiny. And I felt like lawyers earned lots of money. And so when I, when I was looking for um, something to study at university, I had the marks. So I thought, oh, let's go and do a law degree. Um, but interestingly, probably what I should have studied or is in addition to studying law, I probably should have studied economics because I loved it at school. Yep. But like a typical girl, I, I didn't feel like I was good at maths and I shied away from, from the sort of challenge of that. Um, but. You know, when I came to the end of my law degree and I was doing my honours thesis, um, it was on prospectus uh, regulation and corporate governance of all things. And it was really the finance elements of that thesis that really sparked my attention and set me off on a path to, to being involved in the finance industry.
1: Just a sort of interesting point you make there, You know, the idea of confidence in maths among females. I know there's been a lot of studies done on it and that the data says that you know, male and female are equal at maths at age six. And I think by the time they're 18, there's been a a confidence divergence. Is that something you've explored in uh, your work that you've done with with young female leaders today?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I've used my own kids as a prototype. Um, So, you know, I think we often grow to the level of other people's expectations. And so I think if you um, implicitly or explicitly send a message about something, you just absorb that you know, almost by osmosis. Um, and so I think, um, you know, for me, I was really keen when my daughter was a child to send that very explicit message that maths is beautiful, maths tells a story, um, you know, numbers paint pictures as, as you know, the same as artworks or, or pieces of literature. And, you know, it, uh, uh, it, it may well be a coincidence, but she's fabulous at maths, physics is her favourite subject. So, you know, those things I think... Who knows? It's an end of one. But you know, I feel like part of my role is to to help other people build the confidence that probably I was lacking when I was growing up.
1: Yeah, I studied maths myself and I noticed that, that gender balance was was pretty um horrendous at, at university. So having discovered that let's say that love for finance, um during the the degree you, you went off to, to join a Macquarie Bank, I think it was. Sort of how, how did it feel sort of entering the corporate world?
0: I was incredibly intimidated. So I was a, you know, five foot four, 22 year old blonde girl who felt like didn't know anything. I did an arts degree majoring in Asian studies, in particular Japanese language, because I'd been an exchange student in Japan for 12 months while I was at high school and a law degree. So I didn't technically have any finance qualification. Um, And I was in the home of the millionaire factory. Um, And so, you know, I think one of the things, that I learned over the time that I was there, um, was that you have to overcome that and put your hand up when you don't know stuff. And the worst thing you can do is pretend to know stuff. And, and I, I made a really bad mistake actually when I was, um, dealing some foreign exchange, um, on behalf of a client and one of the spot traders asked me the question about whether we were buying or selling Aussie. And I didn't really understand what he meant. And I just thought, oh, I'll just block my way through that. Right. And, of course, I got it wrong and the transaction went the other way and, and you know, we lost, you know, the bank lost money. We had to compensate the client for it. So, you know, some of those things I think um, are such great learning experiences early on because they're the sort of things that can become much Bigger mistakes later on in your career if you haven't actually set down a blueprint um, for yourself.
1: Some might argue that, that foreign exchange is a, is a coin toss at the, at the best of times, anyway. But that was one of the setbacks then that you you had to deal with, and you know, that's one of the, the topics I want to explore: is, that, is the setbacks that people have faced um, along the way and, and what they've learned from them. So there, there was a, well, it was a first. But you maybe um, you alluded in our earlier conversation to trying to be. The, the number one in the industry, as you sort of progressed into into financial planning and putting a lot of focus on that, maybe you could take us on that journey. Yes,
0: yeah, so I think for a long, long time, I felt like I needed a third party's validation of whether I was any good. And so I think you know that was um, you know partly manifested itself in um, trying to get degrees. so I went on and did you know several other degrees after my two undergraduate degrees. Um, and I entered lots of industry awards and tried to get other people to tell me that I was the best at something. Yep. Um, and, you know, there was some things that um, went my way, but, but, you know, for two years in a row, I, I was um, one of the final three in the AFA Advisor of the Year award. And, and it, you know, I felt like I'd really invested in the process and that, that I'd, really absolutely given everything, and for two years in a row, I was sort of literally standing on stage at the AFA National Conference and there was hundreds of people sitting um, at the gala dinner as I was standing there, you know, holding my certificate instead of the first prize. And and it seems like a really small thing, but I felt really deflated by the experience. But what's been fabulous is the learning from that that actually doesn't create much... To be relying on someone else to tell you whether what you do has value. Yeah. And you've got to be, you know, the person you need to impress is yourself and to find value in what you do for yourself and not do it for others. Because you can never fill yourself up with other people's adulation. You know, you have to get that confidence from inside. And, and I've, um, you know, been really grateful actually that if I had won every award that I ever have had have entered, I never would have had that learning experience. And so it's been much more valuable to have you know, had to sort of swallow that bit of bill.
1: And, and easier to put a, a certificate on the wall than a, than a trophy in a cabinet. So I guess it's, uh, <laughs> there's something nice there. But it, interesting that, that that external validation, because to build a business as a, as a financial planner, you need to be, if you like, validated by, by every client that you that you deal with and that you look after. So you could argue that you're getting validation simply by by doing a good job.
0: Yeah, and I think it's like all things in life, um it, mindset and motivation actually are really relevant. And so it's less about, you know, a message that says entering awards is bad and more about what's your motivation for entering an award yeah. process. And if your if your motivation is to learn and grow and extend yourself, then it doesn't matter where you come first or second or third. But if you're very tied to one particular outcome, you know, I think you're perpetually setting yourself up for disappointment because you can never win everything.
1: So you you worked in the in the sort of corporate side of um, if you like of of planning, and, and, and then decided to set up your own business. What what was the biggest challenge that you faced in in that regard?
0: Yeah, I had big dreams about creating the absolute nirvana. You know, in terms of the. the Perfect way of providing financial advice for high net worth individuals and the, uh, you know, an amazing experience for staff and to, to sort of be the McKinsey of financial advice. So sort of the aspiration to be, you know, a step above everyone else. And, and the main challenge was I was just not that great at managing people. And, and there was sort of a revolving door of, of people reporting to me. Um and it was great actually because I had put in place um a, a board of directors. Um I was the sole shareholder, but I had a board of directors um to try and help lift my performance. And one of the directors was really candid with me and he was like, Well, you need to understand what your management style is and I think you're you know what what they call in management speaker paysetter. You know, you like to set a really frantic pace and you expect everyone to keep up yep. and you don't invest anything in nurturing the people around you and um providing them with the same sort of vision that you have all locked in your head. So you either need to get really good at developing other management styles yep. or you need to, to, you know, do something else with the business. And I thought, you know, I'm actually not prepared to make investment in that and so I'm going to... um effectively pass my business to someone else who can take it to the next level yeah. by by leveraging um you know the the, the talent that resides in, in the, the people of the business.
1: Yeah. This is which is quite confronting to to hear that and to to have to adjust, I guess, when you when you have these big dreams and, and you have to go in a different direction.
0: Yeah, it was confronting and I think ultimately it was um an incredible experience actually to see to have the new so I worked side by side with the new owner for two years so there was an earn-out period um, and and so I've never been in experience where you sit side by side with someone who's doing your job that you used to do yeah. but you watch them do it
2: yes
0: and, and it was fabulous because I could really see lots of stuff that the new owner did that I was like wow is that the way you should do it you know no wonder I was getting it wrong. But then there was also stuff he did that was similar to me that I could then um, see why it was annoying for other people. Yeah. Once the pressure of being the owner of the business was off my shoulders, that sort of, you know, tenseness I think I carried around for a long time, once it was removed, I could really observe some of my behaviours while they were counterproductive. And so that learning experience was an absolute gift.
1: So when you take that that style of management, if you like, or or understanding of yourself and, and you apply it to the to the girls that you're working with in these in these new businesses and these startups, what what does that allow you to do to help them?
0: Well, there's a few things. Firstly, just have empathy. Like it's really hard to start a business. You know, Peter Thiel wrote a book. Um, I don't agree with Peter Thiel's politics, but he wrote a great book called Zero to One. Yep. And getting something out of the ground, creating something from nothing, it's hard. Yep. And and having the responsibility rest on your shoulders is hard, and so I think bringing that empathy of having done that is is sort of the first thing I bring. And um, I think the other thing is knowing that um, you're not always ready for all the advice all at once, and so you've got to wait for an entrepreneur to be ready yes. to ask you for the advice that's relevant to the stage that they're at. And so I think you know having lived it myself. You know, I'm sure there was directors on my board who could see all the mistakes I were making, but I just wasn't ready to hear what they had to say. And so I think that sort of um, understanding that you can't just give an entrepreneur a book or a video or, or sort of sit down with them for a couple of hours and go, here's all the things you need to know about business. And yep. it's the evolution of integrating that knowledge that, that actually is really
1: powerful. Almost they need to want to come to you for help rather than the other way around correct exactly so feedback's quite an important theme here then because you talked about receiving that confronting feedback you talk about i guess almost preparing feedback for others rather than necessarily giving it um maybe just talk a little bit more about that
0: yeah so i had quite a seminal experience just recently actually so um in one of the boards that i'm a member of we're working on know, building a culture of red, radical candor so that we feel really comfortable to actually give unvarnished feedback. So so not the sort of typical feedback which is, here are all the good things you did and there was yeah. one thing you could do better, but everything is really good. So we were sort of sharing radical candor and one of my fellow directors said, Look, Catherine, I I don't like it when you compliment me all the time. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And and it was such a great opportunity to reflect on um Things that I value, like I like getting compliments and I love giving compliments and, and I just assumed everyone was wired the same way as me. And I never would have understood that something I thought was positive was actually counterproductive to my relationship with that person. And so the ability of, of that director to, to, to just tell me what she really thought, uh, is, is something that you don't get very often. And I look at great companies, companies that have really made a mark or organizations more generally actually that have really dominated their field and that learning culture based on feedback is often at the heart of it. So, you know, the three reference organizations I often use is the All Blacks. Yep. They have an incredibly robust culture that's always developing. Um, Macquarie, where I started my career, culture is – so important, and and it's not just words. And then Netflix is the other one. There's the famous sort of culture deck, um, and and they you know really model that um, feedback up and down the stack. So it's absolutely appropriate at at Netflix to yep. tell your boss that they're doing something that you disagree with, or that you think is wrong, or that annoys you. And actually, that's part of the reason that they have been prolific in their creativity and incredibly impressive financially.
1: So it's interesting, though. So you sort of said that you you loved compliments and and giving compliments, but today you're comfortable receiving this negative feedback, or are you still kind of wince when it when it comes at you. You know, the, can you can you now? I guess you understand why criticism is important, but but do you take it well?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I find constructive feedback much more useful than accolades. You know, if you do a presentation, everyone saying 10 out of 10, it was fabulous, yeah. is kind of useless because you know yeah. you can't have given a perfect presentation. So the one person who's happy to give you a six and say, well, you could have, you know, um, made a punchier or used better images or whatever, but actually that's got value in a way that just the sort of dopamine rush of, I'm wonderful, I'm so smart, everyone thinks I'm a 10, yeah. that actually doesn't help you become a better person or or actually have impact and uh, create value for other people. So yeah. that's how I feel about, um, you know, constructive feedback, that it's that's something that someone cares enough about you and, and respects you enough to, to actually give you that um, gift and, and trust that you'll take it in the right way.
1: That's great. And it sounds like, you know, you've... Embrace this, this learning journey, if you like. I think you talked before, um, we came on about the idea that you love reading, you love podcasts, you're, you're an infotainment person. So maybe although you admire Netflix, you're, you're not watching the the trashy stuff. So what is it that you sort of devour when it comes to that information or infotainment, as you describe it?
0: Yeah, so I'm a big podcast listener. Um, and so I, I like, um, podcasts that really stretch my thinking around things that I don't understand. So given that I work in the startup space a fair bit, I'm really interested in technology. So there's a great, um, you know, a couple of technology podcasts I listen to, Stratechery, um, that, um, Ben Thompson publishes. And he also does a, a follow-up podcast, which is a conversation podcast with John Gruber called, um, Dithering. Um, the, the sort of all-in podcast, which is, you know, basically four billionaires sitting around talking to each other about technology and politics, um, and and the Pivot podcast, which is Kara Swisher and um, uh, Professor Scott Galloway talking about, you know, a whole lot of stuff. It's very American-centric, but um, those sort of things that introduce me to concepts I'm unfamiliar with or stretch my understanding of stuff, yep. I just absolutely love that.
1: When we think about investing, one of the things that we, we look at a lot is, is change and, and, and long-term change and, and, and businesses that are, like say, investing in a better future. What what have you sort of think has been, I guess, investing in yourself? Um, what has been that sort of approach that you've taken in in, in, in a life sense rather than a financial sense?
0: Oh, I mean, by far and away, the best investment I ever made was my husband. Um, you know, I think if you want to be successful, that sort of, you know, Humans are pack animals. We need, yep. you know, we, it's so hard to, to thrive as a solo being. So, yep. you know, choosing a life partner that um, is supportive and he's spent 25 years at Macquarie. We met when we worked at Macquarie and he's still there. Um, so, he's had a very demanding career as well, but but we've really shared everything. You know, And yep. he, he was very supportive when I started the business, um, very supportive when... It, when I push myself, you know, probably to the limits and a bit beyond, um, and, and sort of given me, um, the freedom to, to, to make mistakes. You know, he doesn't tell me how he thinks I should do it. And, and that's so important that you feel like you've got the support, but you don't have um, someone trying to replace your judgment with theirs. So yes. that's by far and away the best investment that I've ever made.
1: Standing out from the crowd is the other thing that, that, that we really sort of focus on, and you know, you've sort of alluded to some of the things that that you do differently. But if you were sort of really trying to capture it, what are the what are the one or two things that that you think would make Catherine Robson different from everyone else?
0: Yeah, I think I mean the power of small things and the compounding effect of making good choices again and again and again. And um, you know, someone once said to me. Um, you know, do the things other people won't do and then you'll have the things that other people don't have. Yep. And so we all want to be, you know, healthy. We all want to be smart. We all want to earn lots of money. We all want to have a great family life. But, but often, you know, we know what we should do, but we just don't do it. And, and so I think, you know, I, I have quite a high self-regulation capability. So, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink coffee. I don't eat sugar or wheat or gluten or dairy. Um, you know, I exercise and meditate every day, like I invest a lot in, in stuff that in itself, each one of those little things makes absolutely no difference really. But the cumulative effect of feeling energetic, feeling like you're positive, um, feeling like you're grounded yep. and, and hopefully feeling like, um, you've got sufficient capacity to reflect and synthesize all of the different information that you have the privilege to absorb you know that actually over time really compounds to something meaningful
1: did that build in i mean the compounding over time did, did you sort of build them on top of each other or have you have you always had that that self-regulation because i think one of the things people that everyone would love to have that it's a, a great thing to have but how would other people go about trying to get there
0: I think it starts small. And, and so, you know, there's a great book um, by Charles He called The Power of Habit. And, and you know, just use one habit to, to then be the gateway to the next habit, you know, and, and it can be anything. And, you know, we do it already, right? We brush our teeth every day. Yep. Why do we do that? No one tells us. No one gets us in trouble if we don't but it's a habit. And so yep. I think applying that to anything and just starting small so it's sustainable as you say, then it builds on itself, and and you know the more you get up in the morning and feel great, the more you want to go and exercise. The more you exercise, the more you feel like you you know have the energy to take on a new role or you know volunteer time or whatever it is. So yeah, I think that, that sort of beauty in in um, compounding the small things, and and it's the same for me financially. Like I haven't taken any massive risks in in my investing life, but. You know, having just done, you know, invested in good stuff and and let it grow over time, it, yeah. it, it turns into something meaningful sort of before you know it.
1: Yeah. And and I think you allude to the idea that once you had financial independence, you had that sort of liberating feeling, which has allowed you to focus on on other things and and, and trying to make a contribution. So that, that contribution to, to, to girls starting businesses um, is a fantastic thing to be doing. What was the most rewarding aspect of that?
0: I mean, financial independence, I cannot um overstate how important I think that is in terms of giving you mental bandwidth. And so I think for me, the, the the best thing about being, you know, financially independent, at least by my own definition, is that I only do stuff I enjoy yeah. these days. If, yeah. if, you know, if I don't want to do stuff, there's nothing in my portfolio of activities that, other than being a parent, that I couldn't give up. You know, but, you know, um, and so that's an, an incredible feeling of choice that, um, every time I'm in a meeting that's frustrating or going too slowly, or as you say, an entrepreneur is maybe not listening to the message you're trying to communicate. It's great to be able to go, well, I chose to be here. And if I don't want to be here, I can opt out. And, you know, I think that then, it subliminally transmits itself to the people that you engage with, you know, and they feel like you're there by choice, and so they I think they listen to you more. I think um, they value what you have to say more, yeah. and and so you know I, I think again it has this really nice um, circular effect that, that that builds on itself.
1: Yeah. So I guess to bring this round and the, the sort of circular ending, if you like, you know, you, we started off with with you as a kid and the. The, the the life you had at home now you're now you're a parent. What is that sort of message that you're trying to impart? And what what do you think you can give your kids that that maybe you didn't have? How does the you know the family get better from generation to generation?
0: Having that feeling of scarcity around money, it drives you, and so you work really hard. And so one of the things that's always worried me about our kids—they are in a much more privileged environment than my husband and I grew up in. And so I think it's more about thinking how you can solve someone else's problem. If you can solve a problem for someone else, you will always be able to um, find your way in the world. So don't think about the job you want. Don't think about what someone should pay you or you're entitled to stuff. Think about what contribution you can make, what value you can create for, for other people. So, you know, when the kids look younger, they would want to earn money and would and say, okay, so the, the job we want done is for the front garden to have no weeds in it. So I don't care how long it takes you. We can negotiate a price, but the product I want is a weed-free garden, and it's up to you to sort out how you deliver that product that that I want. And I think I'm hoping that that message is is a message of you know resilience and adaptability and sort of thoughtfulness and creativity because I think yep. you know this generation of kids will live in a world that is characterized by accelerating change. And so if you have that sort of mental flexibility, you hopefully embrace that change. In Nicholas Taleb's language, you're anti-fragile. You get stronger, the more uncertain the environment is because there's more people who have more problems that need solving. And so if you've got that mindset, you'll always thrive.
1: I remember right back at the beginning, you mentioned your dad saying you would double your pocket money at the end of every month and, and you, you went and collected money from your friends. Did you ever give that money back or did you uh, did you keep the profits?
0: Oh, I kept the profits. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly, um, I didn't give it back to my dad, but I certainly, you know, split the, uh, the winnings, you know, I gave my friends back their capital and I sort of, you know, shared the, the largesse with them. Um, uh, so it was, a, it was a good scheme for everyone. And I think my dad secretly thinks it's, um, something he's proud of that he has a child that has an entrepreneurial spirit to yeah. sort of work out what the angles are and still say, you know, still stay within the rules.
1: I love that. And uh, look, Catherine, it's been fantastic talking to you and I hope that, you know, uh, the, both the listeners of this episode are inspired and also that the, the people you're bringing through um, in the startups, because I think you've, you've got a lot to share and a uh, you know, fantastic contribution. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us.
0: No, it's a real ple- pleasure, Doug. And, you know, the entrepreneurs I work with are just so inspiring and I feel so grateful that I have the opportunity to share part of their journey. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.